Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer, Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon, okay, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Five. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here. The podcast. We. Oh, the podcast. Yeah. Oh, Monday, August 1st, 2022 people. Hope everybody's doing well. Hope everybody's having a great day. Cannot believe that we are in game month in college football. We got so much college football content coming for you over the next few weeks into week zero, which I believe is four weeks away at this point, including today's show. Here are some of the things we're going to talk about. Obviously, I will open the biggest story, I think, since I last recorded late Thursday. Uh, Pac-12 did have its media days. The Pac-12 commissioner came out guns blazing. And I will say, uh, it's a weird time, but I, I, I did come out of last week feeling a little bit different about things as it pertains to the Pac-12, the Big 12, all that good stuff. Uh, It's not necessarily great news, but I do have some thoughts on it overall, a little bit different than maybe I've thought in the past. From there, I want to talk a little college football recruiting. Don't do a ton of college football recruiting on this show, but we had an absolutely insane weekend. A&M, Alabama, USC, big storylines, and this was probably the single craziest weekend in college football recruiting. We're going to discuss just what happened, what's next, what it means. Not necessarily this five-star committed here, but, but there's big picture stuff that came out. Trust me, you'll enjoy it. And then from there, I actually want to switch to basketball recruiting. New York Times, very interesting article on the recruitment of LeBron James Jr., Bronny James he is going into his senior year of high school I think you're going to learn a lot I think it's going to be fascinating one of the more fascinating basketball recruitments that we have seen in a while before we get to the main part of today's show I do very 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 quickly though I do want to address the biggest piece of news that came out of the weekend and it is obviously uh, it is the passing of Bill Russell NBA legend at 88 years old I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. There are better people to speak about Bill Russell, to speak about his legacy, about what he means. But I do want to address the passing of Bill Russell because we use the word legend in sports way too much. Bill Russell was a legend. Bill Russell was an icon on the court, off the court, in every way that a human being can make an impact on the world. This man did, and I'd be remiss if I didn't discuss him right off the top. 
First of all, they're the basketball exploits. You don't need me to tell you. But this man is the single greatest winner that we have ever seen in team sports from, a, from really any perspective, really, when you really think about it at its most basic level. By now, we all know the stats. 11 titles in 13 years as a professional basketball player. Now, I know if you ask the modern players, if you ask the new media, if you ask J.J. Redick, everybody was a plumber and a firefighter back then. But independent of what the era was like and how many teams there were, and and nobody could ever do that in this era, that doesn't matter. What matters is that this man in his era, in his context, when it mattered uh, the most, was the best player in the sport bar none. He was the biggest winner, he was the most competitive, he was the ultimate team player, which we're going to get into in a second, and I don't think we can diminish it. What makes what separates Bill Russell, though, is it's not just the 11 NBA championships in 13 years. Look at the rest of his on-the-court basketball legacy. Winner in high school, won state championships, according to the press release uh, that was given out by his family on Sunday afternoon. Two national championships at the University of San Francisco. His final two years, they had a 55-game win streak. Wins two national championships at San Francisco. Goes to the Olympics the summer of 1956. Wins a title there. Again, I know it was a different era, but he led the team in scoring. The team won by an average of 50-something points per game. This guy won at every level. By the way, on top of the 11 titles that he had as a player, I don't think a lot of people know this, but late in his career, took over as the coach. We had player coaches back in that day and won a cha- won multiple championships Excuse me, as both a player for the Celtics and the head coach, which is absolutely insane to think about. And so you're talking about a guy that won championships in high school, that won two championships in college, including a 55-game win streak, and you're talking about a guy that won 11 titles in 13 years as an NBA player, some of them as a coach. What I believe, though, that I respect the most about Bill Russell, the basketball player, and I will talk about off the court what that all means in a minute, but from a basketball perspective, here is what I respect the most about Bill Russell. He was the consummate team player and all he cared about was winning. I know every player now, and I'm sure every player back then, this isn't a criticism of modern players, but every player says, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to win. But when push comes to shove, do you really do whatever it takes to win? Are you really willing to sacrifice your individual success for the greater good of the team? I can't speak to every player in NBA history, but you listen to people who played with Bill Russell. You listen to Red Auerbach, the late Red Auerbach, who coached him. Nobody cared about winning more, no matter how it was done, than Bill Russell. What stands out to me when you look at the stat sheet of his NBA career, go ahead and look it up. It's absolutely incredible. He never averaged more than 18.9 points per game in the totality of his NBA career. Will, Will Chamberlain, who I love, I, I, you know, Will Chamberlain's a guy that I've been fascinated with for a long time. I actually sent out a tweet about him, maybe the greatest athlete that's ever been born. Will Chamberlain averaged 50 points in a season. Bill Russell never averaged more, excuse me, I, I, yes, that's correct, 18.9 points per game in a regular season. He never averaged more than that. Never averaged more than 22 points during an NBA playoffs. But what he did do was do, again, all of the little things. 
rebounder. He was the best rebounder of his era outside of Wilt, and he was a bit probably closer to six foot eight than Wilt's seven foot seven foot one. Twenty two point seven rebounds per game as a second year player, a career high twenty four point seven points per game, uh twenty four point seven rebounds per game in the nineteen sixty three sixty four season. Block shots were not recorded back then, but he basically invented the block shot. There's a legendary story about his high school coach. The first time he blocked a shot, his high school coach pulled him aside after, I think he called a timeout and said, great defenders never leave their feet. Well, they had to literally change NCAA rules because of Bill Russell by the time he left because he uh, figured out a way. He, he changed the game in such a way with the block shot, obviously brought it to the NBA. We don't have any tangible records of block shots, but this guy was the greatest defensive player of his era as well. Most importantly, and I do think it's important to, to note this part, the impact that Bill Russell made off of the court as an activist. And I know that on this show, I've talked a lot and on my Fox Sports Radio show, a lot about kind of the modern athlete and the activism element of what we now see in sports. And for the most part, I, I think I've been, I don't know if critical is the right word, but I guess dubious of it all, right? I think a lot of athletes now, they want to take a stand. They want to tell everybody how important social issues are to them, but they don't impact change. And I don't think most of them even understand what they're doing or what they're talking about or how far that we've come as a society. I'm not saying that the society we live in is perfect, but what I am saying is how far we have come as a society, and it's because of people like Bill Russell. The next time you hear an NBA player, and I think I talked about it on this show, but a few weeks ago when LeBron James claimed that Boston was racist, well... Go, why is Boston racist, LeBron? Can someone explain that to me? Is it because they booed you? Is it because they said LeBron sucks? Is it because F LeBron? Because Bill Russell is a guy that throughout his life, he dealt with the most extreme racism that we can imagine. Um, you know, there are stories, and, and I'm telling them secondhand, but, but you can find them on social media, on the internet, on, on whatever. You know, growing up in Louisiana in the 1930s, segregated schools. Um, there was a story that his mother, who was obviously African-American when they were growing up in Louisiana, was pulled over by the cops while she was walking because they did not believe that the dress that she was wearing was appropriate for her uh, and sent her home. I mean, that, that's disgusting. That's repulsing. That is the world that Bill Russell grew up in. Um, the stories beyond that are legendary, right? Uh, you know, him trying to him and the University of San Francisco playing in a basketball tournament in his college career in Oklahoma, and no, sir, they were refused service at the hotel. Now, credit to his teammates, some of which were white, some of which were African American. They all said, if if weren't if uh, Bill and my African American teammates aren't staying here, then we're not staying here. We know about the incident in Boston in his career uh, where someone broke into his house and did all, all you know, sorts of evil stuff. The point that I'm trying to make, that is the world that Bill Russell grew up in, and that was the world that he fought to change throughout his life. I think most people know a lot of it about his social justice activism, but I mean, this was a guy that, uh, you know, even if you just read the press release from his family on, on Sunday... Uh, this was a guy that went back to Mississippi, went back to the Deep South during his playing career and ran the first segregated or integrated, excuse me, basketball camps in the state, bringing African-American children and white children together to essentially, um, you know, kind of show that that 
we're not all we're we're not all that different as people. Um, you know, he's a guy that stood by Muhammad Ali's side when Muhammad Ali refused to be drafted in the uh, in the draft to go to the Vietnam War. And so you can read all of these stories and all that. And, and, and I do want to get to the main points of today's show. But I did feel that I would be remiss if I did not talk about Bill Russell off the top. Again, an absolute legend, a guy that let, lived a fulfilling, uh, you know, complete life, 88 years old, changed the game on the court, changed the game off the court, greatest winner in pro sports history, in sports history, but more importantly, it was about the impact that he made as a human being off the court. Rest in peace, Bill Russell, 88 years old. He passed away on Sat on Sunday. I'm going to take a quick great break. I'll be right back. We'll have a little fun. Pac-12 Media Days was Friday. We'll discuss that. Some recruiting stuff. Bronny James. I'm going to take a quick break. Be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, everybody, I'm back. Good to be back, good to be back. I do want to kind of get to the main focal point of today's show, right? Obviously, we led with the Bill Russell stuff, as we should. Bill Russell is an icon beyond sports, and I I wanted to just spend a few minutes on him. But I also want to get to kind of some of the mainstream stuff, the stuff that we would normally be talking about on the first Monday of August. And really, in my opinion, there's really one big story that has kind of popped since the last time that we recorded for Friday's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, and that is that Friday afternoon was Pac-12 Media Day. It was the first time that everyone has gotten together since the bombshell that USC and UCLA were leaving for the Big Ten, and it was the first time that basically anybody spoke publicly about it, in a, certainly in a public setting. First time Lincoln Riley has spoken, first time Chip Kelly has spoken, and oh, by the way, the first time that George Klyavkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, has spoken. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, did he have a lot to say. He obviously presented a united front. He obviously said we've never been better, as he should, even if it's not totally true. And he certainly had what I thought was one pretty bombshell comment that I do think a lot of people, I I, I guess I would just say I feel differently about one specific comment than a lot of other people do. But let's get to that comment. And it centers around... A few weeks ago, the Big 12 had their media day, and obviously the Big 12 was trying to determine its future post-Texas in Oklahoma, and their new, their new commissioner, uh, uh, Brett Yormark is his name, was asked about the future of the conference, and he basically said, we are open for business. Well, George Klyavkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, was asked about that quote on Friday, and here is what he had to say. With respect to the Big 12 being open for business, I appreciate that. We haven't decided if we're going shopping there yet or not. Oh my goodness! Slap fight between the Big 12 and the Pac-12! But what I would say is I actually thought it was sort of an important quote, and kind of let me explain why. Because when I saw the quote, I was, I was traveling on Friday, had a buddy's wedding. But when I saw the quote, 
the reaction that I saw from most of the media covering Pac-12 media days, or yeah, Pac-12 media days, was kind of like this whole, oh, he looks desperate, he looks pathetic, he looks sad, blah, 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 blah. I actually didn't perceive it that way at all. And what I would also say is I'll take it a step further. I actually kind of feel differently now about the present and future of the Pac-12 than I have over the last couple weeks. If you listen to this show, I've, I've, I've talked extensively about the future of the Pac-12, how, the two, two, how all the 10 remaining schools are not committing to each other. Nobody wants to commit long term. But the more I think about it, the more I talk about it, the more I talk to people in the industry, and the more I look at certain things that maybe some people aren't talking about, the more that I do wonder if it is possible that this Pac-10 that is now stuck together remains together rather than these schools branching off and going to the Big 12, these schools branching and going off there, maybe a few falling down to the Mountain West. The more that time goes on, I do wonder if they actually do remain together. And I think there was some some stuff that came out of Pac-12 media days and really stuff that has come out over the last couple weeks that has kind of changed my opinion. Not saying something crazy can't happen. Not saying that Arizona, the corner schools, whatever, can't decide to leave the Pac-12 tomorrow for the Big 12. But there are a couple things that have happened that have kind of caught my attention and some stuff that I've talked to people behind the scenes about that makes me a little bit more thinking that this Pac-12, as it's currently constituted, might stay together. What are those things that I've heard? Well, first of all, and I've said this a million times, but there is some new information that I kind of want to share, and that is that, look, nothing at the highest levels of realignment is going to happen. And when I say highest levels of realignment, that's the SEC and the Big Ten. Nothing is going to happen until Notre Dame makes their decision, right? If Notre Dame decides that they do want to join a conference, then that probably leads to further expansion and further tearing apart of the Pac-12. The problem is that, one, Notre Dame doesn't have to make a decision anytime soon. They can kind of play their cards close to the vest, see what their options are, and make a decision in a year, in 18 months, in two years as their current deal with NBC runs out. But what I have been told increasingly is that Notre Dame prefers to stay independent. I don't even think that's like breaking news. And that really what Notre Dame's independence is going to rely on is whether or not an independent like themselves will have access to the future of the college football playoff. So in other words, if you're not in a conference, is that going to hurt your chances to make the college football playoff? Well, there has been some interesting quotes the last few weeks for Media Days that make me believe that Notre Dame is going to be just fine in the next iteration of college football if they are not an independent if they are an independent and not in a conference. Here is why. Did you hear what Greg Sankey said at SEC Media Days? The ideas that we had about what and I'm paraphrasing, but the ideas of what we had about the college football playoff are being torn up and started over again. Again, Greg Sankey wanted six auto bids and six at large bids. Six auto bids for conference champions, six teams getting in as at large. That is going to change, and Kevin Warren essentially said the same thing at Big Ten Media Days the other day, is that they the two entities that are going to determine the future of the college football playoff more than any, the SEC and the Big Ten, they are both now in favor of more at-large teams than ever before because, let's be honest, it benefits them the most, it'll get the most SEC and Big Ten teams in, and there is such a consolidation of power in those two conferences that it only makes sense. So if we have a world where maybe there's only three auto bids in a 12-team college football playoff, if we have a world where there are four, five auto bids in a college football playoff, that not only benefits the SEC, not only benefits the Big Ten, it benefits Notre Dame. 
And so the more that I'm hearing, the more that I think that Notre Dame does remain independent and doesn't go to a conference. Again, it can change. Things change all the time. But I believe that right now, if I had to bet, in five years, Notre Dame is still an independent and they, are, they still have easy access to the playoff and maybe they have better access than they even do now in the current climate. So take Notre Dame off the table. I don't think the Big Ten and the, uh, the SEC are expanding. Both commissioners have said that. I believe it, which leads me to point number two. I believe the Big Ten and the SEC are not expanding because of the fact that there is literally no one out there except for Notre Dame and maybe a few teams in the ACC that right now cannot get out of their TV contract that really alters the paradigm of the TV contracts that they currently have. And so why that is interesting to me is because it leads me to the second point that I'm going to make, which is that when you look at the Big 12, Pac-12 element of this, when you look at the idea of the Big 12 stealing from the Pac-12 or the Pac-12 stealing from the Big 12, it seems like obviously the Big 12 has had leverage over the last couple months, or the last month since USC and UCLA have left. But here's the most basic question that I would ask you about a potential Big 12 raid of the Pac-12. The Pac-12 currently doesn't have a TV contract beyond, what is it, 2024. Basically, all of their schools are essentially free agents. If the Big 12 was such a great option for all of these schools, why have none of them joined the Big 12? And what it really leads me to believe is that I think the the, the second-tier teams in the Big 12 and the second-tier teams in the Pac-12 are starting to realize they don't really offer all that much to each other. And if I can give you one thing, and I say it on this show all the time, but for some reason there are so many people that are still confused about this. If I can give you one piece of advice when following realignment at the highest levels, again, including the Pac- uh, including the Big Ten, including the SEC, it is this. It is that TV markets, population in areas, do not determine moves in the modern era of college athletics. It is big brands, not big TV markets. I keep hearing this, and it's driving me crazy. Well, you know, I mean, if the Big 12, I mean, if they had Stanford and Cal, I mean, they, they, they get the Bay Area, and that's like 2.8 million TV households. And if they had uh, Colorado, they get uh, Boulder and Denver, and that's like 1.8 million households. And Phoenix is a rapidly improving market, and if you get Arizona State, oh my goodness. Except here's the thing. That does not matter in modern realignment. It mattered 15 years ago when everybody was on linear TV. But what matters right now in this era is how big your brand is, how much of a national brand you are, and do you increase somebody else's TV deal. That is why Texas and Oklahoma are in the SEC. Texas, you can love them, you can hate them. They are a national brand. Oklahoma's TV market is non-existent, but they went to the SEC and the SEC wanted them because they are a huge national brand with an easily identifiable culture and style of play and success and all that. They make sense for the SEC. USC is a national brand in football, even though they've stunk. USC is a, UCLA is a national athletics brand, even if their football team has not been good. That is why those schools are there. That is why Oregon and Washington and Arizona State are not in the pack are not in the Big 10 and not in the SEC. They offer nothing to those conferences. And so when you look at the current landscape, I think the Pac-12 schools are starting to realize it's not really going to change all that much for us if we go there 
The question becomes, are things more stable there? And that's what I think everybody's trying to figure out. And so, yes, I could still see a scenario where tomorrow, a week from now, a month from now, a couple teams decide to go to the pack, the Big 12 because it's a bit more stable. But on the flip side, it is not going to move the needle financially for any of these schools in the way that they think. Again, if anybody was going to make big money for these TV networks, they would already be in the SEC or the Big 10. Finally, what I would say, and this is important, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot over the last couple of weeks, and I think there is something to it, is I actually do think that the I do think that the Pac-12 is actually in a little bit of a better position with their TV structure than people think for two reasons that nobody's talking about. First of all, to be clear, uh, and I do know, by the way, that, that I, I, you know, I saw the report from my buddy Jason Shear that uh, the Pac-12 was offered $24 million per school uh, at, in the current contract for ESPN. It was a lowball offer. So I get that the, the, the offers on paper do not look good, and if those offers remain, then the Pac-12 will cease to exist. But at the same time, the more that I think about it, there really have been two things that I've seen over the last couple weeks that do make me think that they might be in a little bit of, bit of a better position than people realize. One, Kevin Warren did say something very interesting at Big Ten Media Days last week. He mentioned how the Big Ten, now having a West Coast TV presence, opens up another TV window for them. What do I mean? Well, Big Ten, not great at math, but you do some simple math, uh, the, the, the westernmost Big Ten school prior to USC and UCLA's arrival was Nebraska. So you can't play games at 10 o'clock Eastern. You can't play games at 10.30 Eastern. You can't play games at 11 Eastern. Well, now the Big Ten can because they have USC and UCLA in their conference. That is a big win for Fox, who we expect to be the primary rights holder for the Big Ten, and it completely changes the paradigm for ESPN. Because right now, I mean, I guess they, they, you know, Fox does broadcast games, but why this is actually an important leverage point for the Pac-12, ESPN just doesn't want to punt that 10 o'clock, 10.30 Eastern time window. Live programming trumps everything, and an ESPN ESPN isn't just going to stop broadcasting games at 10.30 Eastern time. They want those late night games because they do still draw reasonably well. I mean, it's not uh, Michigan, Ohio State well. But they draw reasonably well, and so ESPN needs something to broadcast there. And so I do believe the Pac-12 has a little bit of leverage because ESPN isn't just going to give away that late-night window to the Big Ten. They want games of their own. Well, unless you want to sign the Mountain West to some crazy deal, there really is no other option other than going to the Pac-12. And so, yes, I saw Jason's report, and Jason's the man. I love Jason. But I saw the report of $24 million. That's a low ball off for trying to get the Pac-12 to commit to something long-term. Two, here's the other thing about why I think the Pac-12 has a little bit of leverage here in terms of TV. It's that they're probably going to be the first major conference, if you want to call them that, and I know there's really only two conferences that really matter in the future of college sports, that's the Big Ten and the SEC, but I think they're the first major conference that I do think could be a player for these streaming services. We all know that Apple TV and Amazon and Google and Hulu and Netflix want to get into live sports broadcasting if they are not already. We know that the NFL Thursday night games are going to be exclusively on Amazon. We do know that MLB is broadcasting Friday night games on Apple. Some of you might have missed this. 
the MLS signed an exclusive with Apple TV, meaning going forward, I don't know if it's next year or soon, their games will only be broadcast on Apple TV and not on linear TV, not on Fox, FS1, or ESPN. And so when I look at the Pac-12 situation, I do think they have a little bit of a leverage point here because I think they're the first college conference that can take advantage of that situation. Why is that? It is because if you look at the SEC and you look at the Big Ten, I think they're so powerful that they're actually somewhat limited. Now, they're going to get so much money from, from ESPN from, for the SEC and the Big Ten from Fox that it's not going to matter. But those are also conferences. You, it's going to be tough to sell to your fans that you need to sign any kind of deal with any kind of streaming service. SEC is already locked up. Big Ten should be locked up soon. It's just going to be hard to sell that to your fan base. Go to Ohio State fans and say, hey, oh, by the way, on top of paying all this for your cable cut, for your cable bill, now you got to go get Apple Plus or whatever it's called or Amazon Prime uh, to, be, uh, to watch Ohio State versus Penn State on a Saturday. So I don't think the Big Ten can go with the streaming services. The SEC has chosen not to in their latest uh, uh, um, you know, TV contract with ESPN. But the Pac-12 can. And even if they're only selling their second-tier rights, which is basically the second-tier games, they can make that move, and I think most of their fans would be understanding of that because it's the only way to survival. And so I think the big the, the, the Pac-12, between the late-night window being the only option for ESPN and the fact that they can take advantage of those streaming services, I do think all of a sudden they're maybe in a little bit of a better position than I was even anticipating uh, a couple weeks ago. And so to kind of wrap up, what I would just kind of say, I'm not saying that we can't get news otherwise. I'm not saying that in a week or a month that Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, Colorado couldn't be members of the Big 12. But I do feel like if something was going to happen, it feels like it would have happened by now, whether those, those schools stay together as 10, whether they add a team like San Diego State or Boise. I'm starting to wonder, is the Pac-12 actually in a little bit better position than I think I realized and I think a lot of other people realize right now? That's what I'll do. Take a quick break. Do want to come back, and I actually want to do something. I talk about something I don't talk about a ton on this show, which is college football recruiting. I thought there were three or four major things that happened this weekend, three or four things that are very interesting for the present and future of college football. We're not going to talk about individual commits, but we are going to talk about, you know, it's not an individual commitment in football, but you start to stack talent on top of talent on top of talent. Uh, it does change the paradigm. I thought there were three or four interesting stories from Alabama, from A&M, from USC, and from others that happened this weekend. We're going to discuss all of that. That's next. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. 
No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Do want to switch gears. And I want to talk about a topic that we don't normally do a ton of on the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, and that is college football recruiting. And the reason we don't do college football recruiting a ton is because it's just fundamentally a lot different than college basketball recruiting, a topic that we talk about often on this show. In college basketball, one or two recruits can completely change the face of a a program. Cade Cunningham, the day he commits to Oklahoma State, changes Oklahoma State at least for that one year that he's there. Same with Jordan Walsh, Anthony Black, Nick Smith, who are going to Arkansas. Same with some of the guys in the class of 2023, maybe DJ Wagner, if and when he ultimately commits to Kentucky. It changes that team and that program for the following season. College football recruiting is a lot different. Outside of individual player, outside of individual, outside of quarterbacks, I should say, I'm tripping over my own words. Outside of quarterbacks, one individual player doesn't generally make that much of a difference on a program. Because it's just, it's football, right? Uh, you know, a corner, a safety, a alignment, it doesn't fundamentally alter who you are as a program. And so instead, college football recruiting, to me, is more about stacking not only individual talent, but talent across the board in a recruiting class, and then doing it year after year after year after year. I don't know if there's a magic number to how many guys you have to sign that are four or five stars, or five stars, or top 100 players, But the bottom line is the reason that Alabama is Alabama, the reason that Georgia is Georgia, the reason that Clemson has competed at a high level, Ohio State has competed at a high level, a school like Texas A&M is on the way up, is because it's not just about signing one top five class with a bunch of elite players. It's about signing class on top of class on top of class on top of class, stacking classes. And so that's why I don't often talk about college football recruiting is because in general, it's hard to, to, to talk about any one individual thing as this big, major thing for the ecosystem of college football. But what I will say is, over the last couple of days, we actually probably had the single wildest weekend of the college football recruiting calendar so far. Part of it is, I just think the way the calendar strikes us is really probably the last big recruiting weekend for a while. High school football practices are starting college football camps are opening so it's not as though you could just host a bunch of five stars on a random Friday or Saturday in a week or in a month when the season starts but I do think that there was a bunch of things that happened over three or four or five different schools that in my opinion really were major storylines not just because one individual committed here one individual committed there etc but for the overall ecosystem of college football. I believe there were four or five things that happened on this particular weekend, the one we just finished, that I do think can have major impact on college football, not only in this coming recruiting cycle when we start looking at rankings, but also on top of that, the the overall sport itself over the next three, four, five years as these players get to campus. And so I want to focus on two, three, four teams. I want to talk about what happened and the impact that it is going to have on college football, not only this year, not only in this recruiting cycle even, but going forward over the next two, three, four years. The first place where some stuff happened, and some stuff is always happening in a positive way in recruiting, it is at the University of Alabama, where Nick Saban, of course, is going to put together another monster class. Uh, Nick Saban is obviously very selective in who he recruits, but over the last three, four, five days, it's been a busy, busy, busy time at Alabama. Late last week, Caleb Downs, the number one rated safety in all of high school football, 
Oh, he committed to Alabama. Not surprised, picked them over Ohio State and pretty much everybody else in college football. Later in the week, Alabama picks up one of the top corners in the class of 2024, starting off that class in style. But then this weekend, things got very interesting in Alabama. They went ahead and got a commitment from a guy that many believe, some believe to be the number one running back in high school football, Richard Young. And then, oh, by the way, on top of all that, also had a kid named Keon Keeley, five-star, top 10 prospect. Some believe he's the best defensive player in high school football right now. He visited Alabama, did not commit. Why this is important. He is currently committed to Notre Dame and the headliner of an elite Notre Dame class, yet he's visiting Alabama, and not only visiting Alabama, he's visiting for the second time since last fall. And so what this theme says to me is this, is despite all the angst, despite all the concerns, despite what Nick Saban said about the present and future of recruiting in the NIL era, as long as Nick Saban is going to be the head coach at Alabama, Alabama is going to be just fine. The reasons are pretty straightforward. As long as you have Nick Saban, you have the fundamental, the best edge that you can have in recruiting. It is that you win at the highest level in college and you put a lot of guys in the NFL. And so to me, I understand why Coach Saban was frustrated. I'm not here to criticize a legend. I've, I've talked about what I thought about his comments about Jimbo Fisher, and we'll get to Texas A&M in a minute. But at the same time, as much as we talk about NIL in this current space, what you need to understand is this. I talk to these parents. I talk to these players in high school football and basketball. Most of them understand that there is a lot of short-term money to be gained now through NIL. But most of them also understand that in the long term, you still want to go to the position, the place that puts you in best position to get to the NFL, be prepared for the NFL, and stay in the NFL. And so while NIL is this or NIL is that, most kids are still picking schools based on the place that is going to best prepare them for the NFL and win at the highest level in college. And again, as long as Nick Saban is at Alabama, that is going to continue to be Alabama. I do think it's worth noting Despite all the angst and frustration of Nick Saban and all the things that he has said over the last couple weeks and months about NIL, here's the funny part. Go ahead and think about all the teams that we've talked about in recruiting over the course of this summer. We've talked a lot about Miami, what their NIL program may or may not be. We obviously talked about Texas A&M in the 2022 cycle. We've talked about Michigan State getting hot under Mel Tucker. We've talked about a bunch of different schools. Well, after all of that, despite having only 16 commitments... Alabama now has the number four recruiting class in the country for 2023. And that's important because the only schools that are ranked ahead of them right now are Notre Dame, Ohio State, and Georgia. All of those schools have at least 18 players committed as opposed to Alabama 16. Why is that important? It is because, again, whatever you think about Nick Saban's comments, whatever Nick Saban is worried about, Alabama still has by far the best recruiting class. If you go average player, and this is an important thing, if you follow college football recruiting average player ranking is what you should be focusing on it's not about the totality of commitments you can take 25 commitments Alabama might only take 12 but Alabama's 12 are going to be better than your 25 and so in the average player ranking Alabama has the number one recruiting class in the country and so I don't know if they're going to finish number one or number four or number three in the 2023 cycle but they are bringing in the best average player and that is once again going to put them in the best position to compete at the highest level for national championships going forward. So I understand Nick Saban's frustration. It's not to belittle how he feels, but what this weekend and what this month has told me, 
as long as Alabama's head coach is Nick Saban, they're going to be just fine. Beyond Alabama, I do want to talk about another school that's been quite a bit uh, in the headlines over the last couple of months. I just mentioned them, Texas A&M. It was a very interesting weekend at Texas A&M. Here is what happened at Texas A&M. Coming in, Texas A&M only had six commitments for the class of 2023 in college football recruiting. That not only put them behind the Alabamas and Georgias and whoever's, it also put them behind TCU and Duke and West Virginia and Purdue and Minnesota and Stanford. And of course, when everybody said that they only have six commitments, people started to make comments about Texas A&M. And you know where I stand on Texas A&M? I've talked about it a lot. Until you tell me something definitive, until you prove to me that they are using NIL as a recruiting enticement, until you prove to me that there is more than just message board rumors started by a guy called Slice Bread, I'm staying out of the NIL conversation. But it was funny because over the last couple weeks, all you heard was, Texas A&M, not recruiting well in 2023, must mean that the NIL money is dried out must mean that the NIL promises that they made to recruits are not being met in the class of 2022. Well, what happened at Texas A&M on Saturday? They got two commitments from two top 100 players in high school football. Anthony Hill, number one linebacker in America, he's an Aggie. Dalton Brooks, four-star athlete that is expected to play running back, commits to Texas A&M. And so what it says to me about Texas A&M, The theme that I want to deliver is don't believe the hype, don't believe the message board rumors, don't believe the made-up crap. Use context, understand why Texas A&M is not recruiting at the same level in 2023 as they are in 2022. Because if you just read the message boards, it's, it's, it's rumors about NIL. Well, they're out of money, as I just said. Well, those players in the class of 2022 are getting to campus, and they're not happy that their NIL paychecks aren't clearing. Like that, That's been the rumor in recruiting is that there were promises made now kids are getting to campus and they're not getting it they're not taking advantage of those promises here is actually why texas a&m is off to a quiet start i won't say a slow start i will say a quiet start in recruiting in 2023 it's because last year the rules changed in terms of how many players you could sign in a given class it used to be 25 but with players in the portal now with the transfers situation the way that it is you can now sign more than 25 players. And so Texas A&M signed 29 players in the class of 2022, which means that 2023 is going to be a tiny recruiting class. They're probably only going to bring in 15 or so players. So they're getting off to a slow start because they're being very picky on who they are choosing. Yet you know what's crazy about Texas A&M and those that are saying that they're off to a slow start and they can't recruit because of NIL and they're out of money? You know how I just said that Alabama is the number one team in terms of average star ranking of their individual recruits. You know who number two is? It's not Ohio State. It's not Notre Dame. It's not Georgia. It's not Clemson. It's not LSU. It is Texas A&M. And so, yes, they only have eight players signed, but five are top 100 players. So one out of every 20 of the top 100 is now committed to Texas A&M. They have the number two recruiting average behind only Alabama. And again, you can go over there and read message boards and innuendo and this and that. 
Texas A&M is doing just fine. Texas A&M is not signing or getting as many commitments because of the fact that they, of course, uh, of course, uh, because they signed so many players in 2022. But Texas A&M is going to continue to recruit at a high level as long as Jimbo Fisher is head coach. Yes, he has to prove it on the field. Yes, he has to get A&M to a playoff at some point. Yes, he has to compete for national championships. But he was an elite recruiter at Florida State. He is going to be an elite recruiter throughout his time at Texas A&M. The 2022 class had 29 signees. That's why the numbers were so big. Stop with the NIL stuff. Speaking of Texas A&M, I did not mention what was maybe the most interesting development of their weekend. You know how I said Alabama had a surprise five-star visitor, Keon Keeley? You know who was at Texas A&M this weekend as a surprise visitor? Malachi Nelson, the number two ranked quarterback behind only Arch Manning in the class, has been committed to Lincoln Riley for as long as Lincoln Riley's basically been around. Was committed to Lincoln Riley when Lincoln Riley was at Oklahoma. Lincoln Riley leaves for USC. This kid commits to him at USC. Well, he took a surprise visit to Texas A&M. And what this says to me is what I spoke about to you a few weeks ago about USC being behind in a lot of things as Lincoln Riley has gotten to campus, and one of them is NIL. And that's not to say that Texas A&M is giving NIL recruiting enticements, but here's what it says to me. I do believe a couple things when it comes to this Malachi Nelson situation. First of all, what you have to understand about Malachi Nelson, this is important. He and his camp, specifically his father, have talked very publicly about being the face of NIL for the first recruiting class that is being recruited in the NIL era. Remember, 2022, most of their recruitment was on their way to being done. Many kids committed before NIL even went into place on January, uh, July 1 of 2021. But Malachi Nelson, 2023 is the first class that has been recruited basically for two full years with NIL in place. And Malachi Nelson has talked very publicly, I want to be the face of NIL. Arch Manning, he's not really worried about NIL. He wants the best situation for 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 coaching, for development, for whatever, for the NFL. Well, I'm not ashamed to jump into that NIL pool. And so why it's interesting is that I believe that if USC had all their NIL ducks in a row and everything was going the way it was planned and as they, if they were as far ahead as some of these other schools, then this kid wouldn't be taking other visits. But what, why he's taking other visits to me is I think he's starting to look around and say, wait a second now, what's going on here at USC and can I maximize not only my football stuff but my NIL stuff as well? If you remember about two weeks ago, I talked about this with Jordan Addison, potential broken NIL promises. I can't speak to everything that's going on at USC, but the one thing I can speak to, and I talked about this on the show a few weeks ago, all of this talk about USC being miles ahead of everybody else, and Jordan Addison's making this much, and Caleb Williams is making that much, it's mostly hogwash. Now, Caleb Williams is making a lot of money, but Caleb Williams is a quarterback. Caleb Williams is an established brand in college football. Caleb Williams has a major agency working for him. What I was told is that everybody else that has picked USC has largely picked them for the reasons that I mentioned a minute ago with Alabama. If you're an offensive player and you want to play for Lincoln Riley, you're going to be put in a position to succeed and go to the NFL. But what I also told you is if you actually do your homework on USC's NIL, they're actually pretty far behind. They just started a collective in June. That collective is really more of a marketing arm of the university. It's more of a situation where players go there to get connected with local businesses it is not a collective the way that you think of collectives it is a situation where players are set up potentially with local businesses it is not a slush fund to pay players the way that some collectives are 
And so why that's important to me is it says that USC is behind the eight ball. If the quarterback that's committed to you, if the face of your program potentially going forward is taking other visits, I don't think it's a good sign. Look, I still think this kid ends up at USC, but that did jump out to me. Number two quarterback in the country has seemingly been committed to Lincoln Riley forever, is starting to look around. Not a good sign for USC, even if I do think he ultimately ends up there. Really quickly, two other notes that I do want to hit on. One, you know, I just talked about a, a committed player going to another school for a visit. Oklahoma is in a very interesting spot with Brent Venables. Brent Venables comes from the Dabo Sweeney coaching tree. And if you know anything about the way that Dabo Sweeney recruits, when you commit to Clemson, They don't offer you unless it's what's called a committable offer, which means if you say yes on the spot, you have a spot on the team. There are other schools that will put out 200 offers to kids in any given cycle, and you know if you don't commit, it's this, it's that, it's whatever. At Clemson, if they give you an offer, it means that you can commit today, you can commit in a month, we are going to take you no matter what. And so why that's important, Brent Venables brought that philosophy to Oklahoma over the last couple months, and I'll be honest. We're going to talk about this and where Aaron was wrong on Friday. I didn't know if it was going to work. Oklahoma, they're sort of transitioning to the SEC. Now they're recruiting against everybody. Lincoln Riley's out. Brent Venables has never been a head coach. And I was a little worried about Oklahoma and their recruiting under Brent Venables. Well, in terms of this weekend, what's important for Brent Venables in Oklahoma is this. One of the highest rated defensive linemen in high school football has committed to the Sooners, That came on Saturday when Derek LeBlanc, a fringe top 100 player, committed to the Sooners. He is from Florida and basically picked Oklahoma over everybody else. But why it's important, Brett Venables, my guy, is on an absolute tear in recruiting. I looked it up, okay? So Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Sooners, since the month of July started, have picked up nine players, 10 players since June 30th, And they are now up to the number seven ranked recruiting class in the country. And of their top, uh, let's see here, two, four, six, seven, eight, nine. Of their top nine players, that was terrible to do on live air, but forgive me. Of the top nine players that are committed, eight of them have committed in the last month. And so one, Brent Venable's way of recruiting is working. And he had a press conference on this on Friday. We shared it from one of our, our Twitter pages Uh, Aaron Torres pod Brent Venables talked about the fact that you know when you start dating a girl you know and and you say I'm committing to you I'm marrying to you that doesn't mean you go then start dating other people and it's the same in recruiting when you commit to us at Oklahoma that offer is good it's not going anywhere but you don't visit anywhere else I wasn't sure if that was going to work at Oklahoma well they're up to number seven nationally They're getting elite defensive talent, which is what I think you need to compete at the highest levels of the SEC, which is where Oklahoma's going. They are up to the number seven ranked recruiting class in the country, and I'm fired up. I'll tell you this. Talk about the most interesting people in college football in year one. I do think Brent Venables is near the top. Finally, let's wrap this segment as it always does going a little bit long. Shout out to my buddy Billy Napier. So Billy Napier about a month ago lost a five-star quarterback commit, four-star quarterback, whatever it was to the University of Miami. Again, this was in late June. The kid was named Jaden Rashada, and he was believed to be a Florida lean. He goes to Miami, and everyone was jumping off the ledge with Billy Napier. And what did I say on this show? I said, Florida fans, relax. Florida fans, he'll be okay. Billy Napier will figure it out. He's a really good recruiter. He's really smart. He's worked for Nick Saban. He's worked for uh, Dabo Sweeney, the new Florida head coach. 
you're going to be fine. Well, what happened this weekend? Florida got a commitment from their highest ranked uh, their highest ranked player in this class. That would be on Friday the commitment of wide receiver Aiden Mazell, who, by the way, shout out to him, had live alligators at his commitment ceremony. I'm not kidding. You can find the, the video on uh, on Twitter. But Aiden Mazell commits to them. And it, it's the kind of a cap of a busy week, er, busy month in recruiting as the top six players that committed to Florida in their 2023 recruiting class all committed in the month of July. And so Florida's still got a ways to go. I'm not going to sugarcoat it and pretend that they're this unstoppable recruiting juggernaut. But despite the slow start, they now have 16 commits. They now have a pretty good average player rating of, of, of over 91. It's better than a lot of schools ranked ahead of them. And they are now the number 12 ranked class in the country. Now to win a national championship, can't have the 12th ranked class. Got to be top five, got to be top three, got to be number one. But for everybody that was freaking out about Billy Napier, Starting to figure it out, starting to get better, and I'm curious to see what happens with him going forward. That right there, my friends, was an official, long-form review of everything that has happened in recruiting. Uh, And yeah, it was an interesting weekend, I'll tell you that much. Uh, Really, really interesting weekend, and again, I don't talk a ton of college football recruiting on this show, but I think when you look at the themes, Alabama, Texas A&M, USC, I thought it was a very important weekend. So what I want to do? I want to take a quick break, and when I come back, what I'm going to do is go ahead and switch to basketball recruiting, okay? So the New York Times put out a very interesting article on the recruitment of LeBron uh, LeBron James' son, Bronny James, LeBron James Jr., how it's complicated, how it's different, how it's whatever. LeBron James, a class of 2023 uh, recruit, LeBron James Jr., that is. What I want to do is switch to a little basketball recruiting. We'll get to Bronny James what we learned about his recruitment. That is all coming up next. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. So good to be back. And if you want to see the versatility of the Aerator Sports Podcast, how about this? We just spent 20 minutes Talking college football recruiting. Oklahoma, Bama, running backs, safeties, Malachi Nelson, on and on and on and on and on. Now I actually want to switch gears to a little bit of college hoops. Because over the weekend, the New York Times put out a very interesting article 
on the recruitment of Bronny James. Bronny James, of course, the son of LeBron James, 6'2 guard going into his senior year of high school this coming year. And credit Adam Zagoria, uh, I think he and another writer co-wrote the article, but they were down at Peach Jam and they were really kind of asking around on Bronny James, what is his future and will he be playing college basketball again as a player going into his senior year of high school? And so I read the article and I want to talk about it a little bit on this show because one thing that strikes me about Bronny James is that I think you can argue that he legitimately has one of the most interesting recruitments in recent college basketball history. He's not his father, he's not a generational player, but he is a top 50 recruit, a legitimate prospect that could play at pretty much any school in America and probably start at a lot of power six schools in college basketball. Yet if you actually do your homework, if you actually study up, if you actually, in my case, I'm fortunate enough to know people in college basketball, if you actually talk to people in college basketball, it's hard to gauge what's even going on in his recruitment right now. Is he going to play college basketball at all? And if he does, who realistically is even recruiting him? By now, we have a big chunk of the class of 2023 committed. Most everybody else is down to three, four, five, seven schools. Bronny James, there appears to be no credible leader, no credible information as to who he's even recruiting him, which leads again to the fact that this is probably the most fascinating recruitment in recent basketball history. And so let's get into the details of why, some of which you've probably thought of, many of which you might not have. First of all, for people who have seen Bronny James and many for, for those more importantly who have not, um, let's make one thing clear, and this is absolutely no disrespect intended to a 17-year-old kid. Just because his name is LeBron James Jr., he does not have the game of his father, which is okay because literally maybe nobody in the history of high school basketball has ever had the game of LeBron James, maybe the greatest high school basketball player of all time. Bronny is a really good player. He's just very different than his dad. He's about six foot two. He's a guard. He's a lead guard. He's not super athletic. He's probably above average for an athlete. But he isn't a game-changing athlete the way that his father was or the way that fill-in-the-blank you can get. You know you, you know who the elite athletes in basketball are these days. Russell Westbrook, John Wall, uh, you know the, the new era, Jalen Green, Jonathan Kaminga. He's not that level of athlete. Doesn't mean he's a bad prospect. Just means he's not that level of athlete. Uh, and he's really a player who gets by more on his smarts, his instincts. That is one thing that he definitely inherited from his father is he has an incredible basketball intellect and incredible basketball mind. I know that Draymond Green said a few weeks ago or a few months ago that LeBron might be the smartest basketball player of all time. I'm not smart enough to speculate on that, but uh, LeBron is a basketball savant and his son is a very, very, very intellectual and instinctive player who understands the game very well. Still, that doesn't really understand where his recruitment is at because right now, as I just said, it is basically impossible to know who is recruiting him, and that's what makes this so unique. No, he isn't his father. That's okay. Again, doesn't make him a bad prospect, whatever. But he's a top 50 prospect, and nobody really knows who is even recruiting him. Uh, USC and UCLA locally, doesn't appear as though either of them are very actively recruiting Bronny. Um, Duke, uh, you know, my understanding is John Shire was at one of his games, but it was really more to evaluate another prospect than it was to evaluate him. No buzz with Kentucky. Maybe Ohio State because of his dad's ties. But it doesn't explain why Bronny James isn't really being recruited at the highest level. Well, there's a couple reasons why. Let's get into them. The first one, as best as I understand it, 
I think it's kind of tough to recruit him because of who he is and his prominence and his fame if he isn't a guy that can can, can immediately come in, contribute right away, be a difference maker, be an X-factor, be a superstar. To me, in many ways, this is kind of like the old NFL corollary where you don't want the most famous guy in your locker room to be your backup quarterback. It's why once Tim Tebow, it was established that he wasn't going to be the starter with the Broncos, he never really found a home again. It's because when you bring Tim Tebow in, the fans clamor for it, the media clamors for it, the second that your starting quarterback does something bad, they want Tim Tebow in. It's why Cam Newton is struggling to get a backup job right now because Cam Newton is such a fascinating talent that if he is not starting, it is immediately going to be a push by the fans the second that your starting quarterback struggles to get him into games. And for Bronny James, I think it's a lot of the same. This is not the typical mid-to-low four-star recruit that you can bring in, you can bring him off the bench in year one, he can be your sixth man, he can be your fifth scorer, he can be a guy that in his second and third year develops into his star, he is a guy that is LeBron freaking James Jr.'s son, LeBron James's son. And so on top of the fact that LeBron obviously has no patience and has had no patience with coaches and all that stuff, this is just one of those deals where if you bring him in and he's not a superstar right away, your fans start asking tough questions. The student section starts chanting, we want Bronny, we want Bronny. Well, what happens if he's not ready? What happens if, like most freshmen, it takes time to adjust? That's a lot to put on a coach, and I think it's a lot of stress that a coach does not necessarily want, especially, by the way, when you remember that LeBron James has often said that his goal is to end his career on the same team as his son in the NBA. Well, LeBron James is obviously going to be, what, uh, 38 at the end of this year, 39 next year. He won't be 40 until LeBron, uh, until Bronny James is draft eligible. And so that is under the assumption that Bronny is a one and done. If Bronny is a two, three, four year college player, which he probably is, then, you know, LeBron James might be out of the NBA by then. And so I just bring it up because it appears as though LeBron's goal is to have him into the NBA as soon as possible, which would be not this coming season, not next one, but the following one. Well, that might not be the time frame if you bring him in, and so there's pressure from your fans. There's also pressure on top of that from LeBron James himself, who clearly wants his son in the NBA early on so that he has a chance to play with him. Second reason, I think this is really interesting. I think it's just really hard for a lot of college coaches, and I've talked to a couple of them in passing. It's not like I I had an in-depth conversation with anybody on this because I don't think there are a ton of people that are actively recruiting them. But I think it's tough to even know how to get in that orbit to recruit him in the first place. This is not the typical you go through the AAU coach. This is not the typical you sit down with mom and dad and you you, you bring out a a PowerPoint on how they're going to use your son. This is... LeBron freaking James Jr. This is LeBron James has final say. More importantly, I think the people that will directly impact his recruitment, especially in the NIL era, are those that LeBron has surrounded himself with. His business partner, Maverick Carter. His agent, Rich Paul. Remember, this is 2022. 2023, when LeBron James Jr. graduates, Bronny James graduates. 2024, by the time he gets to college. He could be making millions of dollars as a college basketball player. And so because of it, uh, the school, the, the, the team, and when I say team, I don't mean the college team, but the team around Bronny James, 
his, his agent, his business manager, Maverick Carter, Rich Paul, is going to be very particular about where he goes and how to capitalize on his NIL opportunities. So first, you got to get into that orbit where Bronny, where where Rich Paul is willing to have a meeting with you. Because remember, he represents LeBron, Ben Simmons, uh, you know, a million John Wall, a million different NBA players. But then two, you got to make a compelling case to them as to how you're going to use LeBron James Jr., Bronny James, how you're going to uh, take advantage of his skill set, which of course will lead to NIL opportunities. And so I think a lot of schools are scared off by that. I mean, how do you even get a meeting with Rich Paul to discuss this? And then how do you say something that's satisfactory to him? So that's something else to consider. Beyond that, I think the other factor that I don't think a lot of people are talking about, LeBron James Sr., LeBron James, has a 20-plus year relationship with Nike. I don't think anybody that's a non-Nike school should even bother making the phone call, right? I mean, again, it goes back to what we've talked about with DJ Wagner. DJ Wagner signed a contract to be a, a representative and a spokesperson for Nocta, the Nike brand that is affiliated with Drake. So if DJ Wagner is going to be a representative for Nike, no Adidas schools probably need to apply a, a, a show interest and no uh, Under Armour schools probably need to show interest either because at the end of the day, it's hard to imagine a kid that is actually has an NIL deal with Nike, an NIL deal with Nocta going to an Adidas or an Under Armour school. And so it's kind of the same with Bronny James. LeBron has a 20-plus year record with Nike. He is not going to send his son to a school that wears Adidas or wears Under Armour. That means Louisville probably not getting involved. That means uh, whoever, all the Under Armour schools, Maryland, Auburn, et cetera, probably not getting involved. just doesn't make sense. doesn't make sense for LeBron to send his son to play for Bruce Pearl at Auburn. And I'm not saying Bruce Pearl is recruiting him because it doesn't appear as though he is. doesn't make sense to send him to... Maryland, to Louisville, to some of the Adidas schools, Wisconsin's an Under Armour school, not that he'd ever go to Wisconsin. It doesn't make sense to even call. LeBron's not letting your son go go wear Adidas or go wear Under Armour shoes. He's a Nike guy. He's got a lifetime contract with Nike, and I think that eliminates a lot of those schools as well. And then finally, and I think this is the, the important X factor, I think there's just a belief that he might never not ever play college basketball to begin with, that he might go a pro route, that he might do something strange in that one year to get him to the NBA as fast as possible, as we've discussed, to play with LeBron in LeBron James's age 40 season. And so if he does go to the G League Ignite, if he does go overseas, if he does just train for a year rather than playing major college basketball, I think there's a lot of coaches that are just saying, we don't believe he's going to play college basketball. And if he does, the chances of him coming to our school are so slim that it's not even worth going through the process of recruiting him for all of the other reasons that we said. We don't know how to get in touch. We don't think he's going to be a day one superstar right away. And so I think when you look at all of those things, it turns into just a fascinating microscope of what is going on in LeBron James Jr.'s recruiting. Bronny James, I would argue the most fascinating recruitment in high school basketball that I can remember. It's just not often that unless a kid explicitly says, I am not playing college basketball, it's not often that you see not only, again, no schools really actively recruiting him, but none even really showing interest. Now, I will say this. If whether it's LeBron or whether it's Bronny or whoever says, hey, we very much want to play college basketball, somebody will be interested. Somebody will step up. And as we've seen a million times in college basketball, for whatever reason, somebody will take that kid because the the spotlight that it'll put on their program. Reminds me a little bit of Penny Hardaway taking uh, Amani Bates late last summer. 
the upside was through the roof. It didn't work out with Imani Bates. It worked out fine for Memphis. They make the NCAA tournament, beat Boise State in round one. But the upside of having Imani Bates in your program is just too great. And I do believe that if, if LeBron James or Bronny or whomever said, we are very much planning on playing college basketball, then I do believe interest would ramp up. But again, it just comes down to who is actually interested, who is actually able to recruit him, who's able to even get access to him, and what it even looks like going forward. Ooh, what an episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. As always, we covered a lot of ground on today's show, uh, and I, I very much appreciate your guys' support. I know I say this all the time, but download numbers were way up in July. YouTube numbers were through the roof, and I just cannot thank you guys enough for your support, guys and girls. I, I know I've said it a few times. We are going to have some big, big, big announcements coming before the start of football season. I cannot wait to make you privy to all of those, and I cannot wait to share with you some of the things that I am doing individually, but also some of the things that Aaron Torres Media as a whole will be doing, some new podcasts we have coming, some people that we're hiring, at least on a part-time basis. It is just going to be such a fun fall and spring. If you like me, trust me, we got more good stuff coming, not only from me, but from people working under Aaron Torres Media. With that said, it is time for me to get out of here. If you're not subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, please make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also make sure, by the way, to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. I would add this too, and I've said it before, Go ahead and add a little comment on that the, that YouTube rating and review. It really, one, helps us move up the iTunes charts, but then also, more importantly, um, you know, helps us uh, grow this show, as I've encouraged you to do. Uh, you can leave a question for the next mailbag segment on those, uh, you, uh, on those uh, iTunes excuse me, uh, ratings and reviews. Leave a comment. Leave a question. I'll make sure to answer it here on the podcast. But leave a rating and review. It really does help us grow. Uh, make sure you're following on social media. You know the drill. Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter. Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. Uh, and the the uh, the YouTube channel obviously is bumping well over 12,000 followers at this point, subscribers. More importantly, by the way, make sure you're following those individual social media accounts. Aaron Torres pod on, on, on Twitter. Uh, what is it? The, uh, uh, what am I thinking here? I'm blanking. Torres on UK for Kentucky Torres on the hogs for Arkansas Torres on the balls, all of the team specific accounts. We have ones for nine teams. Now total Alabama, Arkansas, A&M, Kentucky, Tennessee, Auburn, which is growing really, really, really well. Arizona, UConn, and Indiana. With that said, I do think it is time for me to get out of here. Before I do, I just want to thank you one more time. Make sure you are subscribed, all that good stuff. And here's the good news. I'm not slowing down. We're only getting stronger. August is here. It is game month, and college football is right around the corner. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. Shout out to JJ Reddick, UF head. Why did you block me? Unblock me, buddy. That's all for today's show. I'll be back Wednesday. New episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.